The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Conjured Saint. It's a spectacular online resource for handcrafted magical artifacts, including ritual oils, sacred bath and body products, and spiritual cleansers. You'll find these and much, much more on theconjuredsaint.com. Even better, Witchwave listeners get 20% off by using offer code WITCH, that's W-I-T-C-H, at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Go to theconjuredsaint.com and conjure some new magic into your life today. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Zoo's Incense. They make exquisite hand-rolled incense cones with natural ingredients sourced from five continents, and they never use synthetics or charcoal. I've fallen nose over heels in love with their many magical blends, such as their Moon Mix, which is made from myrrh, sandalwood, and orris root. Go to zoosincense.com, that's Z as in zebra, O-U-Z as in zebra, incense.com, and use offer code WITCH to get free shipping on orders over $20. Let Zoo's Incense transform your space into a sanctuary. The world is filled with bewitching people. And you might be one, too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. Love is in the air, my friends. Yes, it is almost Valentine's season, so it's time to start cuddling up close to your loved ones or to your own sweet self. Now, I know Valentine's Day isn't everyone's cup of tea, but I adore it. Though I admit I am completely biased because it also happens to be my birthday. But no matter how you feel about the holiday, love magic is a big topic and one that I imagine will come up over and over again on the podcast. And that's why I decided to devote the next two episodes to the topic of love. It's bright side, it's shadow side, and the complicated and wild ways in which it can change shape. Now, I don't purport to be an expert on love, but if there is one thing I know to be true, it's that if you go searching for love outside of yourself, it can often prove elusive, or worse, it can come back to you in twisted or toxic forms. We've all heard that the best way to change your life or change the world is from within. That's a platitude which is tempting to resist or ignore, especially when it comes to magic. After all, 
aren't spells supposed to help us get what we don't already have? Not quite. You've heard me mention before that the word abracadabra is roughly translated to mean, I say these words and so it is. Spells transcend space and time. And so speaking in the present tense and starting with who and where you are right now makes for the most potent results. So to say, I am love, I do love, I have love is more powerful than I want love, I need love, I will get love. Honoring the love that you have for yourself and the love that you're already giving others acknowledges that you are whole and radiant right now despite or perhaps because of any of your own perceived imperfections. And if you're having trouble believing that, well, that's the real work you have to do. And right now is the perfect time to do it because at the beginning of February, we also have the pagan holy day of Imbolc, sometimes pronounced Imelk or Imolk or Imolch. <laughs> it's an Irish Gaelic word that translates to in the belly. And it refers to the time of year when animals are pregnant and about to give birth to new life. This holy day is also sometimes called Bridget's Day or Breed's Day, named for the goddess of spring and fertility, craftsmanship and poetry, the home, and sacred fire. So I suggest that at some point between now and Valentine's Day, even if you're already in a healthy relationship or you're happily single, that you do some love magic directed at yourself. Perhaps light a candle for Bridget and thank her for helping you be a home unto yourself. Even better, invoke her creative magic and try writing yourself a love letter. The poem Anodyne by Yusef Komenyaka should help inspire you. It's an ode that he wrote to himself and his own body. Here's an excerpt. I love the lips, salt, and honeycomb on the tongue. The hair holding off rain and snow. The white moons on my fingernails. I love how everything begs blood into song and prayer inside an egg. A ghost hums through my bones like Pan's midnight flute shaping internal laws beside a troubled river. I love this body, made to weather the storm in the brain, raised out of the deep smell of fish and water hyacinth, out of rapture and the first regret. I love my big hands. I love it clear down to the soft, quick motor of each breath, the liver's ten kinds of desire, and the kidneys' lust for sugar. Speaking of lust, 
Today's guest is Anna Biller, the ingenious filmmaker of The Love Witch, a horror movie about a witch who uses sex magic to try and make men fall in love with her. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. Our conversation touches on the dangers of catering to cliché male fantasy, the importance of the feminine imagination, and the damage that can be caused when someone looks to outside means to heal their wounded heart. But before we get to that, first let's check in and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Caden Z writes, I'd like to start off by saying I absolutely adore your show, which has been so interesting to listen to on my way to school. In the beginning, you mentioned having male guests, and I was wondering if that was still something you were trying to do. I love all of the female power and feminism that your show brings, but sometimes in any witchy or spiritual topic, it is difficult for me to connect with archetypes or ideas presented. I am gay, so I am very in touch with my feminine side, but it's still hard sometimes. It would be nice to hear that I'm not alone in this idea. Kaden, thank you so much for this question. When I began this podcast, I made the commitment to make sure it represented as many lived experiences as possible, and that includes sexuality, gender, age, and race. Now, we're only a few episodes in, And that's not an excuse, but it does mean that I haven't been able to get to everybody yet. I do have some dudes already scheduled for some upcoming episodes, though several of them are straight. And I will absolutely make sure to have some queer male witchly voices on the show in future episodes. You have my word on that. In the immediate future, you might want to research a couple of magical groups that have a specifically male queer focus if you're not familiar with them already. The first is called the Radical Fairies, that's fairies spelled F-A-E-R-I-E-S, and the second is called the Minoan Brotherhood, that's M as in magic, I-N-O-A-N, Brotherhood. You may find some kinship there, and of course you are always, always welcome here at the Witch Wave. The Witch is for everyone. Now, on to my guest. Anna Biller is the writer-slash-director-slash-pretty-much-everythinger of Viva and, of course, The Love Witch, a film that The New Yorker called a metaphysical astonishment and that IndieWire described as an arch but hyper-sincere story about the true price of patriarchy. Biller is consistently celebrated for her use of classic movie tropes and traditional film processes to examine female roles within culture. She's committed to creating cinema that evokes visual pleasure for women, which is probably why words like extravagant and ravishing show up so often in her film's reviews. But beneath its entrancing surface, the love which belies great complexity and extreme tragedy that can come when a woman tries to meet the standards of stereotypical heteronormative sexual relations in order to find love. It was a great honor to get to talk to this film's creative mastermind over Skype. 
Biller, welcome to the Witch Wave. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Great to be here. So you are the visionary behind the breathtaking film, The Love Witch. And I was going to call you the filmmaker, but that seems like such a tiny word for all of the different hats that you wore on this film. You wrote it, you directed it, you're the producer, the set designer, you made the costumes, the props, you composed the music. So this really seems like a magnum opus that you've alchemized into the world. Why did you feel like you had to take on all of those different roles to tell this particular story? Uh, Well, I just wanted it to be a certain way. And to tell you the truth, I really didn't have the support, the financial support and the budget to actually hire a bunch of, um, you know, very skilled professionals because that would have just, they would have doubled my budget, actually. So I made a budget and we were barely able to shoot the movie just you know, go into production at all with the budget. And there was no budget really for pre-production, hardly any at all. But there was a lot of work to be done, a lot of sewing and a lot of designing and a lot of paintings to make. Sure. And um, things like that. So I just started making stuff. And I just thought, well, you know, when I have all this stuff made, then we can make the movie. I read that you worked on this film for seven years. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, it was a couple of years just writing. The first two years was just researching and writing. And then it was several years of gathering and making props and costumes and designing sets and location scouting and all that stuff and um, casting. And then it was shooting and editing. So yeah, the shooting and editing only took about a year. Most of it was pre-production. Oh my goodness. So this film follows Elaine Parks. She's a witch in California. She's glamorous. She's extremely creative herself in many respects, which I want to talk about in a little while. And she is looking for love, to put it very, very mildly. And now this is a motivation that so many female protagonists have on film, you know, especially in romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. But this is for lack of a better word, a horror film, or at least has horrific elements in it. And so Elaine's desire for love becomes something deadly. Each man whom she bewitches or tries to bewitch eventually meets his demise. So it seemed to me like the film in some ways is a cautionary tale about these um, these messages that women are given over and over through film and through advertising and so on. Does that feel fair to say? Yeah, actually, that's that's partly where the idea for the script came from. It was a combination of me having some problems in my own love life and of me then, you know, getting kind of desperate and looking through self-help books and things. And it was so, I just felt so ridiculous because I was... Uh, reading all this literature, and it was all basically blaming the woman if she if she lost her man or she wanted to, to get love into her life. The idea that women are just they just give too much love; they're too smothering. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just the idea of don't call him, don't text him, just leave him alone. The idea is that men just need their space. So the this idea is blames women. You know, you drove him away by not giving him space, and so it seemed like everything was on the man's terms. You know, the man needs space and the woman drives him away by wanting to talk and by wanting to be more intimate and it just seemed like the whole world was geared towards telling women there's something wrong with them 
there's something wrong with them wanting love. And there's so many movies about women just being, you know, sort of slaughtered and murdered and killed just because they reject a man's sexual advances. So I just thought, you know, what about a movie where a man is killed because he doesn't give a woman what she wants? Mm. But also just the idea that these books were, were kind of talking about, you know, they're almost suggesting that a woman does sort of smother and kill men symbolically with her love. And I just thought that was hilarious in a way. And I started thinking about sexuality and femininity and how there's this idea that women are scary. The reason that men find them scary is because of their desire for intimacy mm-hmm. and their desire to, to really know their man intimately. And a man doesn't want to be known because he has secrets and darknesses inside of himself that he doesn't want to reveal. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he doesn't really love her that much. And that's the big secret. The big secret is that he doesn't really love her. He wants her for sex. And in a way, you know, my mother gave me advice when I was having problems in my relationship. She said the same thing. She just said, do whatever he says, give him whatever he wants, never argue, never complain. And I thought, well, that's from a different generation, but actually it's not. Mm, <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. The idea is like that, that if you want to, you know, if you want to argue with a guy, then you'll just be single. I mean, so you could be single and that's fine. But the idea is that if you want to get along with a man... You know, just like cook for him, you know, laugh at his jokes, don't talk back. You know, don't just challenge the ideas him. That, yeah, so the idea is that we think we're equal, but men don't actually, I think, even if they're unconscious of it, men don't actually think we're equal. And so that's the big sort of joke behind the movie is that the men who watch my movie, they don't realize that they think, oh, you know, she's talking about the 50s or something. Yeah. <laughs> what they don't realize is their attitudes and the way they treat women in their lives. They haven't changed really that much, Mm -hmm. you know? So did you find through the writing of this film and the creation of this film any sort of revelation or any sort of resolution in your own love life? I mean, it seems like you're really skewering that idea and rejecting it. And when I'm hearing you talk, it sounds like part of you is like, well, there's some truth to that dark side, too. Well, you know, what it is is that their men and women communicate differently. So I am skewering it and I'm making fun of it because I don't think it should be the way things are. I find it, uh, you know, kind of ridiculous and unfair. But on the other hand, because men and women are really different, and I know that sounds essentialist and crazy, but I think that there's a certain extent to which it's true. You know, the typical man and the typical woman are different. And so that men don't like to be challenged. They don't like for women to argue with them. And, you know, part of that is okay, so they feel superior, but it's also the way people are raised. So that the way to get along with men really is actually (laughs) to give them, you know, to give the impression that you're giving them what they want. So think about what my mother said. She didn't say you give them what they want. She was kind of saying you just give them the impression that you're giving them what they want. And this is really like, you know, I've watched all these classic movies, these movies from the 30s and 40s, and the women always got their way. It's just that there was this sort of a understanding between and among women that men are kind of foolish, ridiculous babies, and they'll go into rages, and they'll do this, and they'll do that. But the women just have the upper hand. They just don't overtly express rage and try to openly fight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We are living in a patriarchy, and we are oppressed. And, you know, you, you can't fight directly with an oppressor. That's just the thing. And the, and, and the men in our lives don't necessarily want to oppress us, but they're upholding ideas and ideals of masculinity that are very tied in with their identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, like my mother told me that her mother, um, so my grandfather would go gambling and he'd make all this money and he'd hide it 
and she knew where his hiding place was, and she and she didn't argue with him about gambling. She would just take the money and just give it out to all, to everybody, to in the, like her children and grandchildren. Oh my god! <laughs> you know that sort of thing. You know what I mean? You just sort of do what you want, but just don't don't argue. And I think. You know, and, and again, my mother's Japanese, so that's a little bit different too. That's even more traditional, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so having a mother that comes from a more traditional type of more old-fashioned culture, you know, I feel like maybe I was almost raised like somebody from another time. Yeah, like maybe you internalize some of those messages because I have to say it's a, it's a heartbreaking point of view, even if there is some truth to it. I mean, look at the world that we're living in right now, everywhere, but especially under this regime. And and there is this, this tragic truth that there's this toxic masculinity that is in control, at least for the time being. So I can see how that there is this really heartbreaking internalization that one can do. And yet, of course, I have to believe personally that there is another way. Oh, absolutely, there's another way. But I think what happened with me is that I had lost all of my self-esteem. I was just at rock bottom. Mm. And so I just kind of felt like, and, and again, this doesn't happen because you lose the love of a man. This happens for other reasons. So, for example, if you already have issues with self-worth going into a relationship. So, you know, so I created a character and she's had issues. She has a past history of abuse and neglect. And so, yep. you, you know, my interpretation is that there are certain people who are more intact. And then there, there are other people that are, you know, they haven't had enough love. And so they're fragmented already. And it's it's like being a user in a way, you know, so it's, it's not really just about men and women. It's the fact that Elaine is a toxic narcissist herself. And she's gotten that way because she's never had the things she wanted. And so her her method of getting things is quite evil as well. <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed. And I think also, you know, when people come to me, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, when, when people have come to me for love spells, I've often given them self-love spells because it's this idea that if you look outside yourself for love, you're always going to come up empty. But if you do the magical work or the psychological work or, or whatever word you want to use to learn to love yourself and learn that you're enough, then you're not constantly trying to feed that hole or fill that hole within yourself and, and then true love can come your way. That's absolutely right. You have to love yourself first. And, and, and I guess, you know, that was the idea behind Elaine is to create a tragic character who doesn't love herself and that's why she really can't find love. And so she twists herself in knots to do the things that men say that they want from a woman. But then she's not really giving them any love. She's just kind of, she's giving men what they think they want, which is this kind of sexy, beautiful girl who's, who's very compliant, but it's creepy to them. You know, yeah, and I think I ended up doing that to get love. I ended up being sort of creepy and compliant for a short time when I was really down in the dumps. And of course, nobody wants that. Nobody really wants that. You know, sure, because sure. it's, it's kind of pathetic. Do you know? And so, I mean, I've never actually admitted any of this before. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. <laughs> it's because of the way you opened. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so it's very personal. So the other really interesting thing is that so many men have seen this movie and they felt felt that it's a very cold movie. Mm. You know, that they felt that it's it's not connected to anything real. And I, I found that really interesting. Like they feel, they feel it's all about the style and it's all about imitating some other period and they 
you say it's a joke, it's a one-line joke, and I'm thinking about it. Everything in the movie comes from some really like heart-wrenching personal experience, either something I've gone through or something a girlfriend has gone through or, 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 or my sister or my mother or somebody. Yeah. And it's just so, it's so invisible to them. And it really kind of proves the thesis of my movie about how men and women look at the world differently. You know, it's interesting. I've seen the film a ton of times now. I, I'm such a fan. And I have to say, though, each time I watch it, I feel a little bit differently regarding how much agency or maybe intentionality is a better word mm-hmm. in terms of whether some part of Elaine wants them to die. No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's the whole thing about spells in general, right? The idea is it isn't necessarily the words you utter in the spell. It's more the intentionality behind the spell. Yep. You know, so if you're saying words, I want somebody to love me, but in your, in your darkest heart, you're thinking, I want men to suffer for what they've done to me. That may actually be how the spell comes out. That's exactly right, that you have to be really clear about your intention. And and it's funny, because the first time I saw the film, I sort of took her at face value, like, oh, she really wants this love. She's doing these love spells. She's doing this sex magic. And it's blowing up in her face, because she makes them so emotional that they can't handle their own shit. And they end up dying in various ways. And, and what a tragedy. And yet, the more times I see the film, the more clear it is that she is so abused, she is so hurt, she has a real disdain and anger for the role she has to play and and for men in general. And so this ambiguity that comes through in the film is is really interesting to me, and it gets richer with every viewing. Yeah, yeah. I worked a long time with the actress Samantha Robinson to try to achieve that, and it was really hard to do, because it was like, no, you're not evil, and, you know, no, you're not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you, don't, you may not really want this, or, you, you know, we really talked a lot about everything, and she, she internalized all of the um, attitudes. So the idea is that there's always a, a kind of an underlying cruelty and bitterness behind her entire performance which I think makes her kind of a fun character too I wanted it to be fun too like she's a femme fatale oh yeah yeah and that that makes her kind of fun to watch because she's not really a victim she's you know she's playing these men exactly and even though she has suffered some abuse and she's definitely dealt with all kinds of really poisonous dynamics between men and herself she also is very self-actualized in a lot of ways. I mean, one of the things that's come through for me a lot upon repeated viewings is how talented she is and how creative she is. She's a painter. She's adept at chemistry. She's a ridiculously incredible fashion plate. She's a small business owner. Like, she's so good at so many things. And as we established, you are a creative behemoth yourself you have all of these different talents and and so I was wondering how much of yourself you put in the character and why you decided to make her an artist and not just a witch in the traditional sense of her only casting spells in that more cauldron and and herbal (laughs) kind of way well you know I did a lot of research on witches and witchcraft and you know one of the things that struck me about it was how so many witches are artisans and they make so many things you know, they create so many things. They make their tools and their altars and they craft their own spells and they do. And a lot of them are artists. And so, you know, and also I 
I just thought, because I'm making all these things for the movie, I'm making wands and spell books and all these things, and I just thought, you know, I feel like a witch while I'm doing it. I feel like when I do when I'm doing art, I feel like it's magic. And I sort of I love this idea of, you know, I think of, of cinema as magic. Cinemas are kind of a magic it's kind of like a dream and I feel like art making is kind of like that. And so that that was the positive aspect of the character, I thought. This idea in which she's kind of crafting her whole world around her and that, that part was very very much me. And then other parts of Elaine, like the part where she's a toxic narcissist, that actually wasn't really based on me. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> Um, but it's based on women I know. I've known women who are so bought into just wanting to please everyone. You know, I'm going to be a perfect man's fantasy. I'm going to look like a Playboy bunny. You know, that their biggest fantasy in life was just to look like that, look like a Playboy bunny, be a man's fantasy. But it was out of revenge. It was out of anger, and it was out of this kind of active sense of wanting to have power, which I've always noticed about women who are incredibly impeccably groomed. They often have this kind of almost like scary power that they're trying to harness like mm. you know this like this power over men that they want to be completely annihilate and destroy men with their beauty and with their sexuality so i thought i would just combine those two aspects but but also there was this other thing where when i was going into like self-help and stuff you know partly for research not only just because of my personal life because it, i started to get fascinated with that i realized how that intersected with the community of people who are looking for spells to help them out of their problems. Like, it was weird. It was like people, you know, reading books and, and stuff and going to seminars, but also people looking for, you know, love spells or money spells or health spells. Sure. Or, I mean, you know, there's so many people out there looking for ways to improve their lives through magic. So I wanted her to be that kind of person as well. That somebody who believes that maybe a spell will fix everything. So, so in a way, she's really smart and, and really together. On the other hand, she's a little bit impractical. And not that spells can't help and can't work, but she hasn't really, again, we talked about this earlier, she hasn't really harnessed her magic in a positive way. Exactly, exactly. You, you said a couple things that I'd love to talk about a little further. I love that you talked about filmmaking as a kind of magic, and, and there's such a rich tradition of other filmmakers who have a similar approach, whether we're talking about like Kenneth Anger or Maya Deren or Jodorowsky. Mm -hmm or Harry Smith or and I recently came across a book in a used bookshop by the experimental filmmaker James Broughton mm -hmm. um, it's a book that you might be familiar with it was originally called seeing the light and then it came out again called making light of it and it's sort of his manifesto about filmmaking and how it's the ultimate poetic and magical art and he has this beautiful quote he says for me cinema is not a history or a technique technology. It is an oracle of the imagination. And I love that so much. And it's something that came to mind when I was watching your film again uh, over this past weekend, because I feel like the feminine imagination is so rarely unharnessed and unleashed in cinema, you know, primarily because there are relatively so few female filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've read you talk a lot about wanting to put a more feminine, imaginal space up in cinema. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more on, on why it's important to transmit this image magic, especially through a female lens. Uh, well, you know, I've always been a big fan of classic movies, especially the 30s, the early 30s up through the, maybe the 60s. 
And when I was in college, I got this kind of epiphany about why. When I read Laura Mulvey's essay on visual pleasure in Arab cinema, I realized that it was because there were so many feminine movies made in that period. The, the, the women's pictures made with female protagonists, but also with these worlds that were, you know, all these incredible interiors. with all this interior decorating, all of this glamour lighting, glamour makeup, incredible fashion. And also stuff that was about talking, people talking, negotiating, working out relationships, um, especially in the early 30s. There's so, so many movies that were feminine, that were written by women, and it's just like great female characters. And um, I realized that the point at which cinema started alienating me was when they started making hyper-masculinist pictures sometime in the mid-60s, late-60s, and through the 70s. And Are you talking about, like, Cassavetes and Scorsese and, like, that school, or...? Like, pretty much every every movie... <laughs> Just um, all of it. Starting, yeah, really, really, starting in the 70s, almost every movie made. I mean, there are certain exceptions. You know, there's certain foreign cinema, and there's certain feminist cinema and there you know there's a few exceptions and some romantic comedy but other than that pretty much film became extremely extremely masculine and about male fantasy at a certain point and I think that at that point I just like got turned off to cinema like it just started like not interesting me and I, I don't think it was a conscious choice it was just even when I was a very small child I was very turned off by movies from like the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and stuff like that I was just really didn't, didn't like it so I, I realized after I read that essay why I was so alienated from these movies that were so masculine. It's just that I couldn't locate a point of view anymore in them because it, was, it wasn't like a mix of male and female fantasy. It was just sort of like all male fantasy. So there was, there was no feminine perspective anymore. And even just stuff like, again, like interiors, interior decorating, lighting, something about just having all of these beautiful interiors that are so beautifully lit with beautiful color, that's sort of a feminine thing, or musical numbers or gowns. You know, in the 30s, you get a general audience and they would go and they would love seeing gowns. Can you imagine like all the men, the men loved seeing gowns, they loved gowns. <laughs> mm, who doesn't love a gown? But men, you know, men today, they're so into being so masculine, masculinist that they might like a gown, but they would admit to liking gown it isn't mm. like you know it's like it's like a gay thing like like you know if they're watching you know the award ceremonies and they're talking about the gowns and people think they're gay they're not going to you know admit to liking gowns or liking musicals or something like that that's like so the culture's become so coded in, in terms of like men having to get more and more and more and more masculine i think as women have become more and more powerful in the world they've had to assert their masculinity so much more that's my love of cinema it comes from comes from this kind of time when there was a lot of glamour and a lot of gowns and things in the cinema. That's what I want to see. That's what I love the most in movies, and that's what I want to see in movies. So that's what I like to to recreate. And they're coming from deeper psychology. So for example, that tea room scene that was inspired by a girlfriend of mine taking me to a tea room a few years ago, and all the women were wearing like these hats, and there were all these little <laughs> matching teacups, and and classical music playing, everything was so precious. And I was just thinking about women and their self-preciousness. And I thought that was actually kind of funny. But people don't talk about that. You know, like men have their male fantasies and their 
sell fantasies about their hypermasculinity through superheroes and things. But women have these funny kind of fantasies about being brides or bridesmaids or a garden party or something like that. I thought, well, you know, we don't see that anymore in movies. That's quite that's quite fun in a way. That's like a fun thing. So I thought, well, I'm going to do a tea room. I'll do a tea room myself, and I'll make and you know, it exaggerated the femininity, but not actually that much from the tea room that I went to. Wow. And for listeners who haven't yet seen the film, there's a few scenes in this room, but it is so pink and there's beautiful cakes everywhere. There's a harpist. I mean, it is so frilly and really over the top and opulent and beautiful. I mean, it's a really, really beautiful room. But yeah, it's like, it's like, female fantasy on hyperdrive yeah and you know this is female fantasy because all the t- i've been to like several tv rooms since then for research and they're all kind of like that they're, you know they have somebody playing the piano and it's all women you know you'll rarely see a man there that's so true and it feels you know just talking to you about this it really does feel like we have to apologize for those of us who do like that kind of thing I love it I love a tea house and to feel like I have to apologize or that it's trivialized and yet so much especially in cinema you know there's James Bond and there's superheroes and all this stuff and no dudes are apologizing for loving that we just kind of take it at face value and yet we're all supposed to roll our eyes whenever there's a fantasy about yeah beautiful clothes and tea and rose petals or, or whatever the, the cliches are. Yeah, but I also wanted to keep it integrated, you know, for a male and a female audience. I love the idea of giving everybody something. You know, like the old movies were like that. They would en- engage in male and female fantasy. So I love the idea of making a movie that men like to see because it's got the horror elements and because it they might be cinephiles who enjoy some of those classic movies and the kind of cinematography and the fact that it's shot on film and there's some nudity and there's, you know, beautiful women. And so they'll come see it for that. You know, then they have to also watch a tea room scene or they have to watch a, a wedding scene and they have to sit through it like how men used to have to sit through <laughs> The old musicals with the big, with the Adrian gowns, and you know, and women sat through war movies, whatever. But there was always something for everybody. You know, yeah. I love this idea of creating a kind of more integrated audience rather than, you know, how Hollywood makes movies. They make men's movies and they make women's movies, and so the movies that are for a general audience, they're completely masculine. But they're for a general audience because women will go see them. Exactly. You know, so they'll go see the most violent movies with no interesting female characters when men will go see this but men won't go see romantic comedy so uh, yeah just like the idea of making movies for a mixed audience you know yeah well I have to say the first several times I've seen the film I was with female friends or I was by myself and I showed it to my husband for the first time this weekend and he loved it I mean he he's also a really special dude with a a well-developed female side but he Mm -hmm. he really loved it and this is a guy who loves wrestling and star wars and sci-fi he he really got it and he also thought it was funny as hell even though it was it's a tragedy yeah It's, it's an upsetting film but it's funny and i laugh through it too i mean you really hit a lot of notes yeah, yeah, I like to make it funny. I mean, because I don't want to make, you know, make it like a big bummer, you know, to have to just, you know, I like to have fun with it. But it is a very tragic story. Totally. On that note, Anna, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty obsessed with candles. And that's why I'm over the moon to tell you about Mithras candles. They are my favorite. 
They're made of pure beeswax and handcrafted by my extremely magical pals in Philadelphia. They have a gorgeous drip style that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. They smell like honey-scented paradise, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Mithras candles are a perfect addition to any home or sacred space, and I can't recommend them more highly. They're available now at MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm talking to Anna Biller, the filmmaker of The Love Witch. We were just talking about hitting all of these different notes, you know, appealing to audiences of all genders and weaving in a lot of different elements, whether it's humor and tragedy. I really want to drill down and talk more about the visuals because you put such painstaking effort into crafting the look of this film. So can you talk about, in a little more detail, some of the visual cues that you were taking, whether that's from like the Technicolor films of the 60s and 70s, or any other things that you were inspired by and wanted to actualize on screen for us? God, there's so much. Um, it's so layered, and I it was long ago, I almost don't remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, 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 yeah, the Technicolor movies, for sure. Like, especially some of the color Hitchcock films. There's a scene in the beginning where she's she's driving in a car down the California coast, and that's directly referencing some of the Hitchcock movies, like The Birds or, um, yeah. you know, or Vertigo with the rear projection driving scenes. So shot like that, you know, the first thing I think about is I want it to be maximally glamorous because this is the first time you're seeing the lead character, and I want her to look really, really beautiful. And there's actually no way to do that without doing reprojection because you can control the lighting. Mm. So if you, you can't, you, you can't put like, I mean, you can try to mount a big giant light on your car and have somebody drive that way, but it's very dangerous because then you have to have, you know, like a big truck pulling the car, you know, it's just, it's this whole thing and, and you really can't get glamour studio lighting. You really can't get it. So I just researched a lot of ways to get the ultimate glamour and the only way to do it was reprojection. So we did that. So we shot that in a studio and then filmed the back plates just, you know, out of the back of a pickup truck going um, wow. going on the highway later mm. or, or earlier, actually. So so we filmed that and then we went into a soundstage and put the car in a soundstage and we got a, a screen and a projector. We projected what we had shot along the coast behind her and then we got perfect glamour studio lighting on her face. And that's one reason that's such a striking opening sequence is because it's it's unreal. Like how beautiful she looks driving in that car is unreal. Like wouldn't it wouldn't happen in a natural circumstance. So Oh yeah. It's so iconic. And then you have the color story of the red, which is just jaw-dropping. I mean, it, it's pretty incredible those first images that you've uh, created for us. Yeah, and then so the imagery came from all kinds of places, but one thing I researched a lot was the witchcraft imagery. And I found that, you know, because I went to some rituals and I looked at, and I realized that rituals today, they often don't go all out the way they used to. And so I was looking at some of these 60s witches, like Alex and Maxine Sanders, oh, yeah. and some of their rituals. And they were so visual. And so I was very inspired by those. And I took a lot of the ideas for the witchcraft visuals from their photo stills and, and videos and things like that. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause I really tried to make a big ceremony out of it. Also the altar that she uses when she makes her 
Love Spell was copied directly from a Crowley altar, mm. and there are actual instructions about how to make it in the, I think it's in the Book of Four. Like, there's a, there's a picture of it, uh, like a black and white picture, and instructions for exactly, like, the dimensions, the proportions, and I copied it exactly. Wow. And so I thought there would be some magic in that. And then, I, you know, I actually hand-hooked the pentagram rug that she lies on. It's only on the screen for a few seconds, but it took me about six months to hook that rug. <gasps> You made that rug? So those were the two first things I did, was the altar and the rug. Oh, and my God. Way before I, I did anything else. You know, and then the Renaissance costumes. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of inspired by that movie um, Donkey Skin, or the French name is Podon. But I went for a slightly earlier period. I went for, like, um, the Italian Renaissance rather than the English Renaissance, which is a little bit earlier. And the clothes are very, very flowy and very romantic. And... Part of the reason I did that was because they kind of reminded me of the clothes and tarot cards. Yeah. So I wanted to bring in that reference. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about actually was the Jacques Demy film, Donkey Skin. Absolutely. Uh, because it's one of my favorite films as well. And that's a film that was made in the 70s. It's made by a fellow. <laughs> and yet it seems like such an exception to some of those gritty 70s movies that you were talking about. So when did you discover that film yourself? I first saw that film when I was 16 years old. And it had made a huge impression on me. And I think that was the film that I saw that made me think that I wanted to be a filmmaker. Wow. Yeah, for listeners who haven't seen it, it's it's just a must view. It is such a visual feast. I mean, it, it's a fairy tale. And everything from the costumes to the set design to the acting. Is it is it Catherine Deneuve in it? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that was really incredible to me about Poe Dawn when I first saw it was that it's an adult fairy tale. Mm. It's about incest, you know. So, so it takes a fairy tale that is a very disturbing fairy tale for a young girl. So it's about things that are very real and scary for girls. So it's very sophisticated. So it wasn't a fairy tale for children in a way. It was like a very sophisticated fairy tale for adults that children could also really enjoy. But it was really made for adults, I felt. Oh, yeah. And the humor and the irony and, and the beauty and everything like that. So, so there's certain films that really stand out to me for having a mix of interesting elements in them that you don't really find in too many other films. That was one film. And, of course, the films of Bunuel are like that. Sure. That they're very mixed in their tone. Or a film like Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Another one of my favorites. I want to talk to you about color and your use of color. Because so many people, when they're trying to depict witches, whether that's on film or in art, they often utilize the cliche of witches wearing lots of black. And yet Elaine, she wears lots of color. She wears lots of patterns. And even in the moments where you think she's wearing all black, she reveals a rainbow in the lining of the outfit. So what was your intention behind your color usage with her as a witch in particular? I was just thinking of her, as a, again, as an artist, as a fashion plate, like you said, and somebody who, she just has an eye. She, so she's not just someone who wears black because she wants to seem like something she's someone who makes her clothes and she makes beautiful interesting clothes and so she's somebody 
so again, that that's the part of it's more like me. It's like I was thinking, what would I want to wear? <laughs> you know, if I was her, like, what would I wear to the tea room? And what would I? And I've done that when I was younger. I used to do that. I used to dress up all the time. You know, like just absolutely outrageously inappropriately dressed all the time. I love to wear costumes. And so I stopped doing that. I started putting it in my movies. So I don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You have a new outlet for it. Yeah. So now I just dressed up my character. So she's like, she was like a little doll. You know, I bought a little mannequin downtown. It was exactly her proportions because she's kind of got like a model's proportion. So I didn't have to alter anything from that. And I just used that. And I made a bunch of little dresses that I just thought they would look perfect on her and they would be perfect with the setting that she was in. So the way I think about costumes is I first think about the setting and then I think, what would somebody wear in that setting? So the tea room comes first and then the clothes that she would wear in the tea room. That's why she has to change because the the costume she wears in the car is perfect for the car, but it doesn't fit into the tea room. So then she has to change to go to the tea room. I love that. And getting back to Laura Mulvey and her essay on the male gaze that you mentioned earlier, I read you saying somewhere about how when you're paying as much attention to the set as you are to the actor, especially if it's a female actor, then the actor is less of an object. Mm-hmm. Like she's instead another tool for telling this story and for world building. Well, yeah. I mean, not that she's less of an object, but that everything else is more of an object. Mm. So the idea is that... Is that um, in the classic movies when they were so beautifully lit, you know, like ashtrays could be glamorous or, you know, like curtains would be glamorous. So I tried to put glamour into everything. And I put so much glamour into like, you know, the drapes or, you know, the oh yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the cakes on the table. So much glamour into everything. And then you light them so there's a ping. So everything becomes equally enchanted. So it isn't like the female body is the only object of excitement and glory and enchantment. Everything that you're looking at is equally that way. And I feel that that's more maybe how women experience the world. Like for a man, they can walk into a room with a bunch of cakes and a bunch of pink and a bunch of beautiful things and and there'll, there'll be a beautiful woman there and their eye just like zings to that beautiful woman. They don't <laughs> see anything else, right? But a woman walks into that same environment and she might see the woman and, and compliment the woman. The woman's wearing something beautiful, but she might notice the dress before she notices the woman or she'll notice the hat and then she'll look at the woman and say oh yeah she actually looks good in that dress you know but it's more like (laughs) women are just a little bit more aesthetically sort of neutral in that way and it's funny because a lot of men will call the film sexploitation I'll think well why are they calling this exploitation it's because that's all they're noticing Mm. All all they notice is beautiful women some partial nudity some you know women in lingerie women stripping and they don't see anything else. Like anything else is interesting to them. So they discard all the rest of the movie in their mind. And so if they talk about it as a sexploitation, they have to ignore like three quarters of the movie. And then totally. They'll, they'll also say, well, this movie was way too long because the parts that didn't have beautiful women partially nude, it'll bore them to death. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just kind of interesting, you know? Well, you had this quote in Jezebel that you're trying to dignify female glamour. Absolutely. I love that so much. But something else that you do is you bring in a lot of subversive images that we're not used to seeing on screen. I have to mention Elaine peeing, and I have to mention the bloody tampon, which made me laugh. And also one of the characters, I think it is Elaine, who says in the film, 
do you know that most men haven't even seen a used tampon? And, and then one of the cops later sees this tampon in the witch bottle that she makes, and he doesn't even know what it is. Like, he doesn't even recognize it. So I wanted to ask about your decision-making around including some of those kinds of images juxtaposed against all of the rainbow color and glamour. Well, I was just trying to do, it came out of my research on witchcraft, making that bottle, the idea that somebody would make a magical bottle and they would put personal things in it. And I thought, well, what's more personal than a tampon that somebody's used? I also noticed that there are a lot of spells which include menstrual blood and things like that. So, so menstrual blood is a big part of witchcraft. And then urine has also traditionally been a big part of witch bottles, something like fluids that come out of the body. So... So just it's just another part of the story, really. The reason I decided to have the voiceover, her talking about how the tampons aren't gross and it's just natural and women bleed and it's beautiful, is because I didn't want people to think that I was trying to use a tampon in a gross-out way. Mm-hmm. You know, like I wasn't trying to say, ooh, this is horror, this is part of the horror, like we're supposed to react to this the way we respond to a dead body or something. I wanted people to understand where she's coming from about the tampon. That this is just part of her body and it's a gift to her lover. Yeah, when I saw it, I didn't feel grossed out at all. I felt <laughs> I felt exhilarated. Like, fuck yeah! Because it's so rare to see that especially in cinema. It's just an aspect of everyday female life mm-hmm. that is so rarely represented and it's still so taboo you know that's changing a bit I think especially with younger generations but I just thought it was really badass honestly yeah I liked I liked putting that in when I decided I was going to put that in I felt really good about it and I felt like yeah that'll be really great to see that in, in a movie you know just to see a bloody tampon and not make a big deal about it but then I also like the humor of the idea of then this cop this very like square jawed cop has to go like carry it around for the whole rest of the movie. You know, I thought that was really funny. I guess keep taking it out of his bag and showing it to people and talking about it, explaining it. He has to show it to a professor and he has to bring it here and bring it there. And I just thought that was really interesting, like the idea that to sort of make him do that. I loved it so much. I loved it. And then what was your decision making in terms of even wanting to do a film about a witch in the first place? Well, I've been collecting pulp novels because when I made my last movie, Viva, I did this photo shoot for publicity at the end, and I was very um, inspired by pulp novel covers, and I I did some setups that came from pulp novels. And then I started collecting some of them, and I started realizing how incredible the covers were. And then I I started realizing how many of those covers were witchcraft-related. And it, it was because in the 60s and 70s, there was such an interest in nudity because of the sexual revolution. And then there was such a, a fear of female power coming up because of the women's movement. And that, that sort of culminated in the figure of the witch, the idea of the sexual witch. So that there was like a fear element, like, oh God, she's a witch and she can destroy me, but also like a fantasy element. Wow, women are, are now going to be exploring their sexuality. How great is that for men? So the, the idea is that there are all these witches and, and all these B-movies and there were these Italian B-movies and stuff. There's so many witches and on the pulp covers. And I just started getting interested in, in the witch as a figure of power and a figure of repulsion. And she's sexual and she's powerful and she's all these different things. And I just thought that's interesting to make a movie about a witch. And again, I, I came up with the idea of making a movie about a love witch 
there's one of my favorite movies is Leave Her to Heaven. And that character in that movie is she's a toxic narcissist like Elaine. And her mother tries to explain it to her husband why she's so insane. And she says, well, you know, Ellen loves too much. Yeah. And, you know, and it, the idea that it was like a euphemism. Like a toxic, narcissistic woman. She just loves too much. So she's like suffocating everybody around her. She's like suffocating her husband. She's practically killing him. But it was that same issue about women. Just They're just too much. They love too much. And it didn't seem like she was that unreasonable in the movie. But she's portrayed as, as this incredibly evil. Because she doesn't give her husband the space he needs. He's a writer. And then there was a movie, Gertrude, that also inspired it. It was... Uh, it's about Carl Dreyer. And it's about this woman. And she has all these suitors. And she's married. And... None of the men really measures up because none of them can really love her. They are, they're all selfish. They, are, they just have their own selfish needs and desires. And she ends up being alone at the end because she can't stand any of them. But it's just her kind of spiritual quest for love. And I just thought that's so interesting. You know, I'm really interested in love as a subject. And I think that seemed radical to me to make a movie about love. And I thought, well, you know, you can do that. So it's that same thing about me trying to integrate audiences. The idea is that you make a movie about love, but you don't make it a romantic comedy. You don't put it in a form people expect. You put it in a kind of a horror movie, and you make it about a witch, and it's kind of like rad, and it, it has this imagery that's very appealing to men. And then men have to go see it. Men have to go see <laughs> a movie about love. You know, they have to see a wedding. To, you know, they have to watch it. They have to sit and watch it. And then, then maybe they understand who we are a little bit better. So I just I had all these ideas and thoughts. So there's like a whole number of things that went into it, you know? Absolutely. Well, you have made an absolute masterpiece. It is one of my favorite films of all time. So it's been such a treat to talk to you. Just quickly while we're wrapping up, can you give us a little sneaky peek at what you might be working on next? Yeah, I'm doing a, a movie that's based on what used to be called Women in Peril Pictures where a woman who does, as a man that she doesn't know very well, she gets married to him and she finds out that he's extremely dangerous and maybe a killer. Mm. In movies like Gaslight and Caught and Sudden Fear, those are some of my favorite movies. And so I decided I would do one in that genre. That's awesome. And when might that come out? Well, I don't know, because I you know, I don't have the funding yet. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, if there are listeners with deep pockets, you know where to find us. Absolutely. Well, I just can't wait to see what you do next. And for any listeners who want to find out more about you, they can follow you on Twitter. What is your handle again? It's at Miss Anna Biller. And then can you tell us your website? Yeah, it's lifeofastar.com. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure everybody is going to be watching this film if they haven't already. The Love Witch can be downloaded pretty much everywhere now. Is that right? I think so, yeah. So iTunes and all the usual places. Yeah, I think it's also free on Amazon Prime. (gasps) Fantastic, fantastic. So a wonderful way to spend your Valentine's Day this year. Thank you so much for joining me. This was an absolute honor. Thank you. It's great to be here. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Anna Biller for bewitching us with her words and with her stunning films overall. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Email me at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com and you might be featured on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. 
Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal and Matt, well-developed female side, Freeman. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, whichwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us tons and tons of stars. It makes a huge difference. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have an iPhone, you really might dig my witch emoji for iMessage. Fill your texts with witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors by searching for witch emoji, all one word, in the App Store or by going to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.